Wooshka Studios. Listeners are advised that this podcast contains coarse language and adult themes and is not suitable for younger ears. G'day, mate. Matthew Tom. Oh, mate. Yeah. How are you, mate? Yeah, here too. Yeah, mate. I am. Um, bloody, um, we need to sit down and have a yarn. Oh, yeah. That is definitely bone. Yeah. Wow. Wow. How far did you have to dig? About this far. Yeah. And after that, I bought a gold detector and I went looking for that. Ah, oh, so this is, the graves aren't on your property. No. They're on what used to be the old army no, land? No, it's Morgan Park. Oh, wow. And I, I reckon it was a grave then. And okay. over the years, I went back a couple of times. Six, that, that was six years ago you went yep. first? Yep. Back, uh, uh, back then, them days, back in like 40 years ago, like there'd be just some scrub. Yeah, well, it still is. Yeah. Do you reckon well, that's bad? Uh, I think it is. If you get in the sun, it sort of seems to have white through it. The, the um, thing, and where this grave is, there was a heap of dirt out on the side of it, you know? Yeah. That hadn't been filled in. Yeah. How old do you think the disturbed earth is? Be 40, 50 years old. Okay. Wow. Really, clay has gone hard there now. Yes, okay. And I just dug that out and straight away I thought, well, it's bone. Are we looking at the white material there? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's so different from the rock, isn't it? It is. Where this main grave was, I tried it with the gold detector and it squeals there. At each three of the three graves? Yeah. At each one that you're getting a... You're getting a noise. Yeah, and between you and me, I really think there's more than that there because... Why do you say that? Well, down a bit further, where I was getting there, down about 100 yards, it looked like another grave there. Mate, if if this is McCulkin's, you you found Vince's graveyard. He's got a graveyard. So there's at least three graves there, possibly four. Well, yeah, I... But see, there's two two other women missing too. Like, fuck me, Mm. If you found his graveyard, because one bloke said to him in jail, he said, oh, do you know Vince O'Dempsey's here? And Vince said, no, who's he? He said, fucking fuck him. He said, he's got his own graveyard. He's got to bury him standing up because they're running out of room. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The next day they fucking had to get the bloke out for his own safety. Mm. Got to bury him standing up. Is this it? Have we found Vince's private graveyard? We have bleeped out the farmer's name. He has asked to remain anonymous out of concern that Vince O'Dempsey will identify him. I hop into B***'s old four-wheel drive and we head to the outskirts of Warwick, up a pothole track and then into a thickly forested nature reserve. As horrible as murder is, the families of victims, such as those who perished in the whisky, usually have one saving grace, if you could call it that. Those left behind have to live with their loss. But usually, they lay their loved ones to rest. That grace was never afforded the family of the McCulkins. Only two people in this world know where the bodies are. Vince O'Dempsey and Gary Shorty Dubois. 
the search for Barbara, Vicky and Leanne has never ended. At the start of this podcast, the whereabouts of the McCulkins remained a mystery, but we vowed to continue looking for what we described as that most gruesome of holy grails, Vince's private graveyard where he buried his victims. Then just a few weeks ago, I got a call from an old farmer called out at Warwick. He had been fossicking through bushland outside of town and had stumbled upon something that sent absolute chills up my spine. Quite eerie out here. Eerie. Yeah. That was how I found myself looking down into a rectangular, sunken piece of earth in bush thick with hardwood trees and clusters of prickly pears. I had to catch my breath at that moment. I felt both incredibly excited and profoundly moved. Had we found it? After all this time, was I standing in Vince's infamous private graveyard staring at the last resting place of the McCulkin girls. and digging holes and clay and things I've never ever seen it before. As in those flecks of white through the clay? Yep. Yeah, even that. Yeah, that's right. Look at that in the sun. There's even a little piece glimmering there. Up to that time, I think that's about all you'd expect to find. Like yeah, given that they were completely unprotected. Yep. A few years ago, came across what looked like a series of old graves. But only since Vince O'Dempsey's arrest and imprisonment in 2017 has he found the courage to come forward and declare what he thinks he might have found. Vince's private graveyard. And what is that? What do you think that looks like? Looks like a tooth. It does. After 46 years, had we found Barbara, Vicky and Leanne? From Wooshka Studios, I'm Matthew Condon, and this is Ghost Gate Road. In this episode, we will explore the chaotic aftermath of the Whiskey-A-Go-Go massacre, expose startling new facts about the origins of that crime, and who was behind it, and, as we had hoped all along, take you to an untouched stretch of bushland that just may be Vince's mythical private graveyard.
She knew something about the whiskey a go-go, and O'Dempsey and Dubois had a motive to silence her. A fellow named Vince O'Dempsey. But he was capable, capable of murdering anything that had a heart. There was just a complete wall of smoke and flames and very, very black smoke. The name whiskey a go-go is now synonymous with the fire attack which gutted a nightclub and killed 15 staff and patrons. Queensland police believe they've made a major breakthrough in Australia's oldest cold case, charging an elderly man with murder. The thing I remember most about that was the 15 bodies laid out in a row up um, along the street, all covered in the white sheets. That's, that memory has never left me. Fire shows no mercy or respect for anybody. I came away from that excursion into the bush with with an old honey jar filled with soil and what looked like bone fragments, stone-sized white objects and ivory-coloured slivers embedded in clay. In the meantime, more information about Vince and the Whiskey-A-Go-Go firebombing continued to materialise. It's difficult today to sense the community shock and outrage over the Whiskey Massacre, not just in Brisbane, but across Australia. A crime of this dimension would have been alarming in New York City or London. But Brisbane? Perhaps it was a place where precisely this sort of thing was bound to happen. A sleepy, dreary, conservative country town where men wore short pants and long socks to work and almost everyone went to church on Sunday. A place that still suffered a hangover from the 1950s. The exact sort of unexpected environment that harboured psychopaths and degenerates and would-be gangsters in its shadows. Wannabes and preening amateurs who got the mix of threat and muscle wrong and just happened to kill 15 innocent people in the process. Had the whiskey firebombing been an elaborate extortion attempt by a gang of opportunist criminals that had simply gotten out of hand? Or was it something so calculated and intricately organised, from senior corrupt police down, that even by today's standards, it would stop you in your tracks? While the ash from the whiskey has inexplicably yet to fully settle after 50 years, Over time, some secrets do work their way to the surface. And this is one of those secrets. Thanks to information from multiple sources and the evidence of eyewitnesses, we can now reveal a shocking truth. The Whiskey-A-Go-Go firebombing was a highly planned extortion operation. Two days before the tragedy, in a secret location in Brisbane, several people met to discuss and organise the upcoming attack. I spoke to one source on the strict condition of anonymity. He said he had, by chance, met a member of the legal fraternity who had received a confession from his boss about an extraordinary meeting in Brisbane on Tuesday, March 6, 1973. He still feared for his life. 
you know, if I'm in danger, I don't know. A couple of years ago, I mentioned to you that I'd had a conversation with somebody in the street and they said that they'd worked with a solicitor. The solicitor was their boss at the time. The person was a young solicitor. And that was around the time of the Fitzgerald inquiry and the boss had told the junior that he, the boss, and a number of other people had met on Tuesday night before the Whiskey or Go-Go fire to organise the business behind it all, insurance, banking, police and the club owner. Let's stop right there and try and comprehend that. We've just heard my source say that 48 hours before the Whiskey atrocity, a clandestine meeting of lawyers, bankers, insurance agents, the club owners and corrupt police was held to discuss the impending attack. I went on to ask my source, was the purpose of the meeting to organise the mechanics of the whiskey firebombing? He said yes. I asked him, who was the solicitor? He named him, but we have chosen not to reveal that at the moment. I asked him again, who was at the meeting? Well, the person at that time said the club owner, so he was talking singular. The accountants. The names weren't given in the first contact, just the areas that these people had come from. Then I met that person another couple of times, and each time I asked a little bit more. I was able to ask a little bit more after the initial shock. And so it turns out that also present was a former policeman who was the source of that book, The Most Dangerous Detective. Glenn Hallahan, I said the subject of former Brisbane journalist Steve Bishop's book, The Most Dangerous Detective, The Outrageous Glenn Patrick Hallahan, a damning portrait of Hallahan as a possible killer and a detective rotten to the core from the earliest years of his disgraced career. Oh, Hallahan, okay, all right. Yeah, I'm sorry, definitely Hallahan. This person identified Hallahan by saying, this is the man, this is the book that was written on him, which was the most dangerous detective. I asked him twice if Hallahan was the former police officer present at the whiskey meeting. When I asked that about the police officer, I was told that that person had already left the police force and was working in insurance. That was Hallahan, friend to the Clockwork Orange Gang, who had resigned from the Queensland Police Force in late 1972, just months before the whiskey attack, under a cloud of corruption allegations. He would later go on to work as an investigator for the State Government Insurance Office. Could it be true that these disparate people had secretly met to cover all bases on the upcoming mass murder? It is a theory given even greater credence, thanks to Kath Potter. And they lit it, and I said to Liz, oh, my God, what are we going to do now? And she said, we're going, Kath, come on, we're going. And we got to the car, and the next minute, boom! She had left the whiskey just minutes before the fatal blaze to make a call from a phone box outside the club. And while she was on the phone she saw a large black car glide up to the entrance, three men dressed in black get out and roll two fuel drums into the lower front door. Then they set fire to the drums. Kath was sickened by the deaths at the whiskey. 
But on the Saturday night, just two nights after the blaze, she and a girlfriend got back on the horse and headed to Checkers nightclub, also owned and run by the little brothers who had the whiskey. And that night, something peculiar happened. So we got in there, and as soon as I walked through Checkers' door, I just felt sick. I thought, I can't play this game anymore. I can't do this anymore. But even though I felt comfortable, I just didn't feel good being there. So the next thing, I'm sitting there with Liz and we're just tapping our feet away and bopping to the music on the chair and John Bell come along and he said, G'day, love, how you going? And he put his hand on my arm. He said, how are you? And I said, not good. He said, no, I wouldn't imagine you would be. He said, how do you think I felt yesterday morning having to identify bodies? So then I'm sitting there and we're still bopping away, having a couple of drinks. So then John came out of the office into the into checkers, walked over to the bar, put his put his arm on to they cuddled, they hugged, they slapped each other's back. They both had drinks and then they were talking. And then the next thing John came back, he said, the everything you want tonight's on the house. I said, Okay, thank you very much. He said, Here's a drink for you and your girlfriend. He said, and there's a coffee waiting for you when you're ready. He said, and we'll give you whatever you want to eat. He said, it's on the house, Dale. I said, okay, thank you. He said, but in a few minutes, he said, no, I'm going to have a talk to you. And I said, oh, okay. I said, is everything all right? He said, yeah. He said, we just want to get a few things straight with you. I said, all right. What did Checkers and whiskey manager John Bell have to get straight with Kath Potter? Could it have been that she'd given a statement that she saw three men outside the club just before the whiskey went up and that police had pressured her to change that statement? Kath was nervous. Her new boyfriend, James, came over and grabbed her hand and said, Come on, come on, Bubbles, we're going in. He led her into the office. So when I go to the office, and then it was just behind the actual counter, and when I walked in there, it was only a small office, so there was Brian and Kenny Little, John Bell was sitting there. James. John Bell James. Yes. James was there. Sorry, yes. And me. And he was sitting next to me with his arm around me and had his hand on this arm, and he kept patting it. So the Little brothers were in there? Yeah. And you knew them by sight? I knew them so, but I, and even then I never got introduced to them. No one said, well, this is Kenny and Brian Little. No one said that. I just, I knew okay. they were the Little Brothers. So this is the Saturday night. Yes. What time roughly was it? Oh, probably about 10 o'clock, right. 9 or 10 o'clock so at night. So you were called in, the door was closed? No, the no. door was open. Okay. Yeah, and they just said, come in and we want to have a chat. There was no meeting, no nothing. It was just a sort of off-the-cuff chat, I suppose, for want of a better word. What the men were most interested in was the person she spoke to on the phone when she rang checkers in the early hours of Thursday looking for her boyfriend James, the man who told her she better get out of the club fast. And they were very interested in the black car and the three men dressed in black like terrorists who rolled out and lit the fuel drums. Yeah, Thursday morning. He said, sorry about that, darling. He said, that was un, 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 inevitable. He said, sorry. And he said, I do believe you rang here looking for James. I said, yes, I did. He said, do you know who you spoke to? I said, no, I don't. 
He said, you can't remember. I said, it was a male. I know that much, but I don't know who it was. He said, that's interesting. He said, because the office was supposed to be shut. And I said, well, it wasn't, because when I rang, they answered within two rings. And I said, and he actually, and he said, so what did you say to him? I told him exactly what I said to him, what I said over the phone. And I said, and in the end, I said, well, I've just been up to Whiskey. And I said, James is not in there. He asked if I'd seen you. I said, no, it was too dark. He asked if I'd see these two guys. And I said, no, it was too dark. And he said, well, then get the hell out of there. And, and that's when one of them, one of the little brothers said, it would have been Regan. I thought, I don't know who Regan is. And then John said, no, wouldn't have been because he's in Sydney. Wouldn't have been. And James said, it would have been so-and-so. And I can't remember that name. And he said, no, not him either. He's down there with him. He's in Sydney with him. Don't know who that was. Stuart John Regan. You will remember him from an earlier episode. He was Vince's Sydney doppelganger, a psychopath, killer, gangster, and nephew to mob boss Paddles Anderson, who ran a number of prostitutes in King's Cross and was dubbed the magician for his ability to make people disappear. Regan and Vince were good friends, and it was Regan who hastily flew up from Sydney on the day of the whiskey tragedy. But why? The men continued to question Kath. And then they said, tell us exactly what you saw. So I did. And he said, they weren't two jerry cans, but they said, no, it was a drum. I'm telling you now, it was a drum. He said, all right. He said, how many men were there? And I told him that there was a two not medium, normal-sized men, and a tall streak of misery. And once again, I said, it reminded me of Pee Wee Wilson. And, of course, James was laughing. He said, it wasn't Pee Wee. I said, I know that, darling. I'm not stupid. And then the other brother said, I've had a gutful of this shit, and they walked out. And John said, well, I'm terribly sorry you had to go through that and witness that. And he said, we're not, we're, we couldn't be more sorry that you had to experience that. He said, but we will look after you. He said, we will both look after you from now on because clearly you're the key witness. Well, that meant squat to me. Mm. So I walked back out. Elizabeth's just sitting there, like stalled by the water, and she said, you know what, I want to go. She said, I'm not happy here tonight. I said, I could, you couldn't be, I said, I, I totally agree with you, you couldn't be further from the truth. I said, I don't want to be here anymore either, let's go. So we went home. I asked Kath if the meeting was really all about finding out exactly what she saw that night and whether she could positively identify anybody. I would say that John Bell was really concerned about me and just pleased that no harm had come to me. As for the little brothers, I never felt comfortable with them and I wouldn't put anything past them and I wouldn't mind betting that they were doing that. They were sussing you out. They were sussing me out as to whether I saw them or not. So two meetings, two days before and two days after the whiskey atrocity. One seemingly to make sure the firebombing was going ahead and that all the T's had been crossed and the I's dotted. The second, after the event, to assess who had seen what on the night of the fire 
and to get some sort of story straight about who was responsible for this simple extortion attempt that had gotten horribly out of hand. It was now mass murder. Fifteen innocent people were in the morgue. And the public clamour for heads to roll and justice to be served was monumental. At some point in those 48 hours after the fire, a narrative had been decided, by whom we don't know, that two scapegoats would take the rap for the tragedy and the rest would be kept in the shadows. For the fiction to succeed, everybody had to be on board, especially the police. So it transpired that by the Saturday night, detectives had zeroed in on just two primary suspects, John Andrew Stewart and James Finch, and both were still on the run. With Barbara McCulkin and the children in hiding after the whiskey went up, police were on the hunt for Stuart and Finch. Hadn't Stuart been blabbing about town for weeks that Sydney mobsters were about to torch a Brisbane nightclub as part of an extortion racket? How come Stuart knew so much about the mass murder in advance? Stuart, on the run, contacted his police mate, Detective Basil Hicks, pleading his innocence. He also told Hicks of one of the more unusual motives for the firebombing. The audio you are about to hear is part of the transcript of a conversation Hicks had with Stuart a couple of days after the fire. Stuart told Hicks the newspapers were going to give it a shocking cook the next day. Who's going to get the cook? Not yous. Not yous, mate. Nah, not the CIU. It's Whitrod and Hodges. They're going to give them a shocking cook. They're out to get them. They want to bring them undone. Why Whitrod and Hodges? It's political, Basil. It's political. Police Commissioner Ray Whitrod and Police Minister Max Hodges were to be cooked, to be brought undone. The timing of this comment is significant. What was going on within the Queensland Police Force at the time that might have seen the Commissioner dragged into the whiskey fiasco as a possible motive? Ray Whitrod had been Commissioner since 1970 and from the outset had tried to rid the force of corruption, especially the fabled Rat Pack, Glenn Hallahan, Tony Murphy and Terry Lewis. Since the 1950s, the trio were rumoured throughout the city as being the corrupt apprentices to former Commissioner Frank Bischoff. The word was that they controlled crime and corruption in Queensland and oversaw a kickback system from illegal prostitution, casinos and SP betting known as The Joke. Hallahan had resigned after corruption allegations before the whiskey. Around the same time, Murphy had been transferred out to distant Longreach in northwestern Queensland. So too Lewis, who was exiled out west to Charleville. It was Whitrod's ambition to smash the Rat Pack, to divide and conquer. And there was no officer who despised Whitrod more 
than the powerful Tony Murphy. Murphy, the top cop, had as his informant the top criminal, Vince. Was part of the motive for the whiskey to remove Whitrod? How could a commissioner continue when 15 people had died on his watch? And did Murphy use the skills of his informant, Vince, to make that a reality? That Sunday night, three days after the fire, Finch and Stewart were arrested in Brisbane's western suburbs. They were brought into headquarters and interviewed separately by detectives. The records of interview remained controversial and a subject of debate to this day. Both Finch and Stewart would later claim they were verbaled or were the victims of false testimony authored by the police to secure arrest and conviction. The detectives present for the interviews included Sid Atkinson, Brian Hayes, Ron Redmond and Sydney detectives Roger Rogerson and Noel Morey. Years later, Rogerson told a journalist... Stuart was like a bloody wild animal when they brought him into the watch house. He was a pretty fit little bastard. I remember all the muscles on his chest and stomach rippling like a bloody weightlifter. So when they lumbered Finch, we said, right, this bastard's going to talk. He was handcuffed to a chair and we knocked the shit out of him. Sidney Atkinson was pretty fit then and he was given a terrible hiding. We all laid into him with our fists. The blokes were yelling at him, you fucking cunt, Finch, you fucking murderer. You killed 15 fucking people, you mongrel. I admire the way he kept his trap shut. He was as guilty as sin, but he didn't want to give us the satisfaction of hearing it from his own lips. The bastard didn't utter one bloody word. He just sat there and copped an almighty hiding. Both Finch and Stewart loudly protested their innocence. Both were committed for trial, but it was a fractured and bloody road to their court date. Finch tried to amputate his finger. Stewart swallowed wire crosses. In Bogger Road, Stewart was largely kept in a cage away from other inmates. He regularly doused guards with buckets of his own effluent. At one point, he escaped onto the roof of the jail and spelt out in broken bricks that he had retrieved that he and Finch were innocent and had been verbaled. It was rumoured in jail that Stuart had a secret black notebook and in it were codes for all the corrupt police and other figures who had been behind the whiskey firebombing. At the trial in September 1973, a number of dangerous underworld figures were called briefly into the witness box. There was Sydney gangster Lenny Mr Big McPherson, who denied meeting Stuart on the Gold Coast in late 1972. He admitted he knew a man named Stuart John Regan. Next up was Frederick Paddles Anderson, for a time Vince's gangster boss in the 60s and early 70s. He had little to offer the court, except that he had been called Paddles since he was a child because of his big feet. Then there was psychopath Regan himself. He listed his employment as company director 
and said he had no interest in Brisbane nightclubs. Butter wouldn't have melted in their mouths. In the end, Finch and Stewart were found guilty and sentenced to life in prison. They were off to Bogger Road for good. And that was seemingly the end of the whiskey saga. Two men, Finch and Stewart, were the mass murderers. Just the two. Billy McCulkin did not drive the car that night, as rumours suggested. Vince O'Dempsey was nowhere near the whisky. There was no grand conspiracy, just two malicious grubs who were now where they belonged. And that was the accepted narrative. Except it wasn't true. Fifteen years later, when Finch was taken from Bogger Road and extradited back to the UK, he made a full confession to Brisbane journalist Dennis Watt. And not just about his own involvement. He fingered a cast of other characters who were supposedly integral to the whisky job. He said a top Queensland detective was the mastermind behind the planning of the extortion attempt, along with Vince O'Dempsey. John Stewart was the prime manipulator, but he wasn't the champion. The bombing was supposed to have thrown a scare, not just into nightclubs, but all of Brisbane. Restaurants, shops, SP bookies, the lot. O'Dempsey had to be working in with the copper, selling people out. Those blokes don't survive unless they're doing that. It was always funny how me and Stuart got pinched, but nothing ever happened to the other pair, or Vince O'Dempsey. Finch said he lit the fuel with a match. Billy McCulkin drove the getaway car. Tommy Hamilton was also there, though this has always been denied by the Clockwork Orange gang. Finch said they were dressed in all black, like Black September terrorists, and had stolen a black car for the job. This is the precise description eyewitness Kath Potter gave police at the time. She was ignored. Finch went on. O'Dempsey and his sick crony Dubois were allowed to get away with murder to hide the truth of the whiskey a go-go. They grabbed Stuart and myself, but they didn't get Hamilton and McCulkin and the people behind it. If we'd have been O'Dempsey's men, I'm certain something would have been done to help us. As it was, we are left there to rot. Should we take the word of a semi-literate career criminal like Finch? Well, we don't even have to, because Vince blatantly confessed his involvement in the whiskey to his apprentice, Warren Wazza MacDonald. In the late 1990s, Vince was informed that Jim Finch was coming back to Australia from the UK to implicate him in the whiskey mass murder. And Vince panicked. What happened is I was down at Woolai with my dad and mum. Yep. And dad pulled me aside and said one of his federal copper mates told him that they're extraditing um, Finch back to Australia to um, give evidence against Vince at the Whiskey Gogo. Mm. So when I, when I got back and told Vince, Vince went off his fucking head and said, get fucking back down there and find out exactly where it come from and find out, he said, I need to work with the facts. Mm. I said, okay, you're right. So I had to drive all the way back down. He gave me a handful of money to get the fucking paper and shield and 
So all the way back down I went. And um, and I said to Dad, and Dad said, oh, I thought you might be back. I said, well, mate, fucking don't tell me half the story. Tell me, tell me the whole lot so I can tell him. Mm. And he said, oh, well, there's a federal copper mate of his that told him, and he, he said, take it fucking serious. So I went back and I said to him, I said, mate, take it fucking serious. It come from one of Dad's federal copper mates. Oh, and then he, he walked off and he fucking, you could hear him fucking, all the voices in his head coming out. Mm. So, anyway, he said to me, he said, listen, he said, I'm going to need your help with this one. And with that under and over shotgun, don't saw it off yet. He said, but one in the mouth and one in the one in the chest. He said, I aim for the biggest part of the body first, then, then put the next one in the mouth. Oh, God. So, so did, okay. you, did you go out on a boat at some point? Yes, we did, yes. Okay, that, so was that was later. That was later. So Vince, okay, said to, Vince said to you, I want if Finch comes back, you're going to kill him, and this is how you're going to kill him. Yes. So, so we come up with a plan. I said, well, listen, mate, I'm pretty good on a boat, right? I said, I'll just weave through the traffic and pull up with the traffic lights, let him, let him have it straight through the window. Mm. And... Um, and uh, I had an armed over shotgun and I could put a solid in, in one and an SG in the other one. And what are they, mate? What What's the difference? What are they? Okay, well, if, if you a shotgun sh- shoots pellets out. Yeah. Okay, now, like if you shoot ducks, bang, you, you know. But a solid is a solid bit of lead. Yeah. Like a bullet. But a big fucking chunk. It goes straight through a windscreen of the car, straight through your head. Mm-hmm. So, so um, that's what I said to him. I said, well, I've got, I've got some solids and I've got bloody some SG. So what I'll do is I'll, I'll hit him in the chest with the fucking, through the window with the bloody solid and then I'll fucking put the other one in the mouth. Mm. Now, I was asked, I was asked by the detective, do you think you would have done it? And I said, mate, I was young and silly, I, I probably would have. Later, Vince told Wazza he wanted to speak to his father about the Finch matter, and they drove together down to Woolai, a seaside village north of Coffs Harbour on the New South Wales north coast. So Vince's girlfriend and, and Vince and myself, away we went in her red car. And then we went down to the beach, and... Dad, Dad said to him, he said, come on, said, we'll get out of here so we can have a talk, because Vince was really fucking on ten dogs, you know, he's talking around cars and houses and all sorts of things. Mm. So off we went. We put the boat in and away we went. It was a lake, was it? No, no, out to sea. Out to sea, okay. Out to sea, yeah, we went through the bar and out to sea we went. We just went in close, we didn't go too far. And it was a nice little spot down down south of Willow a little bit. And we anchored up and just fishing there. Mm. And that's when Vince said, well, Wally, what's fucking going on, you know? And he said, well, fucking, look. He, he said, Robin's right, we can talk in front of her. There's no problems with Robin. She was one of us. Mm. So, no problem. So, bloody, um, uh, Dad said, you know, I was one of my couple, couple of mates and, and, you know. And he said, well, you know, he said, well, if he comes back, I'm fucked. He said, I'm screwed. He said, because he could finger me for it, for the whiskey you go there. Mm. So, so he, he didn't say the whiskey go, go. He said the whiskey. Mm. He said he continued to look like the whiskey. He said he comes back on the 
And Dad said, well, is there anything we can do to help? He said, well, well the young fellow's going to help me. He said, well, he's out in the shotgun, and he said, well, when him all turned up. Mm. Had you ever heard of Vince talk about the whiskey before? Yes. What did he say? Um, oh, he, he said um, about all the people getting killed and, and, you know, there was a lot of standover and bloody things there. He told uh, the cooker at the bloody, at the crop. He was talking all about it. Because apparently when we drove past Leslie Dam, apparently I said, oh, there's a sacred site. And Vince and Sheila were in the car with us. Mm. And, and, and she said, what's sacred site? I saw this with the Whiskey and Go-Go girls are. The Whiskey Girls, Barbara, Vicky and Leanne McCulkin. Back in September 1973, Stewart and Finch are found guilty of the whiskey mass murder and are tucked away in prison. Nobody else is charged with anything over the whiskey, not Vince, Billy McCulkin, Tommy Hamilton, or the myriad of other players in that tragic drama. Over in Dorchester Street, Barbara's marriage to Billy is falling apart. She knows he had a hand in the Torino's fire in February 73, and she has a pretty good idea he was part of the whiskey too. He is drinking, philandering, occasionally beating her, and there is a suggestion he has been sexually interfering with his daughters. On top of that, Barbara believes he may also have contributed to the death of 15 innocent people. She's had enough. How can she live with a mass murderer? Barbara is in mental turmoil. But she didn't know who to turn to. Sometimes she unloaded her thoughts on a young man called Peter Nisbet, who lived next door at number four Dorchester Street. They'd yarn over the back fence. He would go on to tell a coronial inquiry and police about his conversations with Barbara. On occasions, Mrs McCulkin spoke about John Andrew Stewart and the Whiskey-A-Go-Go nightclub fire as well as the Torino nightclub fire. She stated she was in a position to put her husband away in jail for offences which he had committed of which she knew about. The context in which Bill is mentioned in it is that, you know, that he'd given her a hard time at certain stages. You know, she wanted to get away, and if she could, you know, it'd be a way out by putting him up the creek. I can recall one conversation with Barbara where we spoke for an hour to an hour and a half. Barbara told me that her husband was associated with criminals and she had enough on Billy to put him away for years with what she knew. In the same conversation, Barbara told me that her husband, Billy McCulkin, had something to do with the Whiskey A Go-Go fire and that if the cops had asked him the right questions, they would have found out more people involved in the Whiskey A Go-Go fire. So what was so critical about what Barbara knew? She was convinced her husband, Billy, had a role in one of Australia's worst mass murders. She was ready to give him up to police. But if she gave up Billy, she would also, inadvertently, be giving up others involved, like Vince. And as we've seen, Vince, when threatened, did not leave behind any witnesses. It was only just women, women, kids, uh, the lot. No witnesses. But you didn't think, well, this guy is actually capable of murdering women and children. Well, no, he was capable, capable of murdering anything that had a heartbreak. While Barbara's life is deteriorating, 
Vince is suddenly on top of the world. He opens his own massage parlour, Polonia's, at the back of an arcade in Lutwich Road, Lutwich, in Brisbane's inner north. His partner, Diane Pritchard, was the chief madam. This was something of a miracle in corrupt Brisbane in the early 1970s. Crooks, even one as serious as Vince, didn't just put out a shingle and start raking in money off the back of prostitution. He might have been the muscle for the vice scene, but owning your own parlour was a huge step up. It had to be sanctioned by crooked licensing branch officers. Arrangements for monthly kickbacks had to be made. I have stood in front of what used to be Polonia's, a small, narrow, rectangular space down a side alley off a larger office building. In its day, it had an entrance vestibule, a massage room and a kitchenette out the back. But my question is, how did Vince, just weeks after the conclusion of the Stewart and Finch trial, and having evaded attention for the whiskey by the skin of his teeth, manage to enter that rarefied air of being a massage parlour owner, virtually giving him a licence to print money. How, after the botched whisky job that could have brought down elements of the Australian underworld and sent several men away for the rest of their lives, did Vince manage not just to get through the disaster unscathed, but emerge as a criminal high flyer? His criminal mates at the time have their suspicions. One associate, who declined to be named, said, The way I saw it, it was Vince's reward from the corrupt coppers. The whiskey is wrapped up. Finch and Stewart do down, and that's the end of the story. The whole thing is contained. There is no way in the world Vince could have done what he did without being protected by police. He just couldn't have. He was close to Murphy. The question is... What did Vince have on Murphy that allowed him to do pretty much what he pleased? Kingsley Fancourt was a young undercover operative in the Queensland Police Licensing Branch at the time Vince set up Polonia's, and he was warned by a senior officer to steer clear of O'Dempsey. He was told Vince was wanted for two murders in northern New South Wales and was suspected of burying a body in the wall of a dam outside Warwick. Kingsley started quietly investigating the alleged killer and hitman and soon uncovered the link between Vince and Detective Tony Murphy. But if Murphy was the top cop, then um, uh, the top tough cop, then it would make sense that um, Vince was his informant. Absolutely. Vince was doing his dirty work. Once the penny drops, it'll all run back to Murphy. Murphy had to have this this infrastructure, so to call it, Mm. to protect him himself as well. I shudder to think what Vince Vince must have had something himself on Murphy for that relationship to work. Of course, of course. (laughs) Murphy would have issued certain instructions to Vince over the years to do this and do that, and it was all dirty work to to make the system work without interruption. Mm. So O'Dempsey, with that knowledge, had the goods on Murphy. Mm. So it had to be a happy relationship, otherwise all hell would have broken loose. 
Yeah, that's the thing, isn't it? It's this sort of this sort of tenuous dance where if, right. if someone breaks from the dance, then it's chaos. That's right. And 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 Dempsey was Murphy's tool, mm. and and uh, so was uh, uh, Glenn Patrick. Do, do you think, as a tool, knowing what we know about Vince, that that could have extended to murder? By November 1973, as Vince was counting his cash over in Lutwich, Barbara McCulkin booted Billy out of the cottage in Dorchester Street. The marriage was over, and a flood was coming, literally. Tropical cyclone Wanda was pushing monsoonal troughs from North Queensland down towards Brisbane. Through Christmas and the New Year, Barbara was alone with the girls. She had little money and seemingly no future. She maintained a semblance of order for her daughters. She bought their books for the new school year. She prepared their uniforms. Then one afternoon in January 1974, her husband Billy's friend, Vince Dempsey, popped by Dorchester Street with his mate Shorty Dubois. In the next episode, we will explore the full horror of the McCulkin murders. It will not be easy to listen to. This is a prelude, a warning about what is to come. I need you to imagine this. You're walking deep into the Australian bush not far from Ghostgate Road. It is pitch black and starless. It's been raining all night and water drips off the leaves of the trees. Somewhere, you can hear the murderous cry of a stone curlew and it sends a shiver up the nape of your neck. Ahead of you in the gloom is Vinco Dempsey and Shorty Dubois. And with them is Barbara McCulkin and her daughters, Vicky and Leanne, the women bound and stumbling through the undergrowth. It doesn't matter if they scream. Nobody will hear them out here, in the folds of the hills around Ghostgate Road. It's the early hours of Thursday, January 17, 1974. Vince has driven the women here from Brisbane in his orange Valiant Charger. He is walking them to his private graveyard. The party crosses a shallow creek, past some willow trees, then makes its way up a low rise. We are close now to this story's heart of darkness. We are close to the commission of a crime so hideous that later, even in a court of law, the universe would forbid the full details of how the children met their deaths being revealed. But Peter Hall of the Clockwork Orange Gang knows exactly what happened in the bush outside Warwick that night, because his mate Shorty, in shock, told him all about it the next day. And Peter Hall 
told me. The horrific images, as fresh in his mind today as they were almost 50 years ago. There really are no words in the English language to describe the depth of horror at what happened to the McCulkin women at Vince's private graveyard. Extreme disgust and outrage don't even come close. Vince strangled Barbara with his bare hands. Then Vince motioned to the children, asking Shorty, which one are you going to fuck? When I finished, and then she said, you've got to kill one of them now. And he said he couldn't do it. But there was one detail that Peter has never forgotten. A detail that nobody has ever heard beyond Vince and Shorty and Peter and this small band of men who all peered into the abyss of this horrendous crime. Until now. Vince, Peter confided in me, asked Shorty to kill one of the girls, but he couldn't. Then Vince killed both of them. And Vicky, the oldest, and just 13, uttered her last words on earth. Vince, please, she said, not the knife. Ghostgate Road is produced by Wooshka Studios. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Visit ghostgateroad.com for additional material and a full list of credits and search for the official Ghostgate Road discussion group on Facebook.